off the ball. You're not as interested in things that aren't at top, top level. But tell me this wouldn't be amazing. Last day of the season and nine teams could go down. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. The Sunday Papers on Off The Ball. Now then, you're welcome along Sunday Papers. Uh, so... I'll run you through the back pages first of all uh, glum phases on the uh, back page of the Mail on Sunday as you might imagine the Irish women's team yesterday in Cardiff and the headline is a tough day no kidding uh, Greg McWilliams coach we've got to learn from this and get better beneath that it was 31-5 if you missed the scoreline beneath that we're going to war for Kenny against France Vez Nathan Collins very emotive language from Nathan Collins so going to war for Stephen Kenny was the way he pitched tomorrow evening we have uh, more build-up to Ireland-France tomorrow. Stephen Kenny's press conference and uh, Stephen Kenny has uh, gotten his Ireland team in the mood for tomorrow by showing them uh, various Ireland-France uh, matches from yesteryear is the back page of The Sun. We have the Sunday World. Stephen Kenny, we can do it. To be fair to him, he's certainly, in his wider comments, absolutely respectful of France and acknowledges they're massively up against it. But he is saying they have a chance. Ireland manager Kenny believes his team can beat France tomorrow to be in a spot to qualify for the Euro. So that's the uh, back page of the Sunday World. We have the uh, mirror then. It's Nathan Collins again, call to arms. And again, it's that Nathan's line, or Nathan Collins' line about going to war for Stephen Kenny at the Aviva Stadium. Then we have the Sunday Independent. It's a picture from Cardiff yesterday, and the headline is No Way Through. Ireland suffered 26 point defeat in Six Nations opener. And beneath that, Kenny Bullish, but wary of French threat. And then the Sunday Times, as I slowly but surely find the front page. They give you a selection. They have a picture of Kaiyasaka. And it's uh, Jonathan Northcroft's piece on the craziest Premier League finale ever. And he's got all the stats to back up the argument. They have a picture of Munster losing at home to Glasgow. And then Roy McIlroy, who is in the semi-final of the match play over in Austin at the moment. Brilliant McIlroy wins on the 18th to win uh, match play semi. So they have three pictures in their front page. And beneath that, they have Lee Carsley, England under-21 manager. I'm not after Ferguson. Bloody right you're not. I mean, uh, the cheek. So uh, Evan Ferguson not on the English radar, says Lee Carsley. Very happy to say we have cover Ramblers manager Shane Keegan here in the studio. Good to see you again. Hello, how are you? And long time no talk, Mr Andy McGeady. Great to have you in the studio. Thank you, Joe. Yeah, pleasure. I mean, if Lee Carsley was to even think about taking <laughs> Evan away now, I couldn't take it. Uh, and for those of you going, but hang on, he's played for Ireland. What do you mean, uh, would he be on their radar? Uh, so this piece by Paul Rowan says, Ferguson almost certain to make his competitive debut against France tomorrow, but technically he could still switch to play for England if he plays three or fewer competitive games for Ireland before he reaches the age of 21. Well, the rules are mad, aren't they? Does that mean we're hoping he doesn't score five tomorrow? Like just <laughs> have, have three average games and then do your thing is that what we're hoping for? Look, I don't, I don't look. I know even you're saying it in jest, but I, I, it's it. Don't, it is something that keeps coming up and will keep coming up until he legally is 100% tied to Ireland I can tell you there has never been any hope nor is there any hope whatsoever of Evan Ferguson ever declaring for England um, I understand why we're so wary given our, our, our previous uh, 
defections but um no evan ferguson if you uh 10 minute conversation with with evan's dad which i've had on one or two occasions would make you aware fairly quickly evan ferguson oh. won't be heading off to play for england over my dead body <laughs> well he doesn't need to go that far but i mean man his bloody employees is that is employed by the fai like you know he's 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 uh you know f- fully fully indoctrinated that's for sure thankfully yes okay well it seems we jumped off on ireland france tomorrow evening to give you a sense of what Stephen Kenny is saying here on the front page of the Sunday Independent he's talking about the Irish approach France beat the Netherlands 4-0 at the start of France Friday so Stephen Kenny said we don't play in a low block as it's called that's not part of the team that we've assembled we don't want to do that that's just not what we do uh, we don't assume that just because a team is superior to us that we inevitably will have much less possession and we'll have to succumb to a situation where we'll just have to defend deep and hopefully uh, get a break or play on the counter. We don't have to do that, is what he's uh, saying. He does add, neither will we fool ourselves into thinking that if we're stringing passes together that we're in the ascendancy because France can be devastating on the break themselves when they turn the ball over. And I think, Shane, I have several worries about tomorrow night, I have to say, (laughs) but uh, if you you take the, uh, the Griezmann first goal, at yeah. the Stade de France uh, Friday where the Netherlands twice gave it away in their own half I did find myself seeing a saying it's exactly the kind of goal I could see Ireland giving away in fact Ireland did give away that kind of goal the Doherty pass uh, the other evening and uh, they're just going to have to be pragmatic I'm not saying have no respect for possession but just be you know, pragmatic uh, cut, cut your cloth to fit your measure kind of very much applies here so it does look I mean you know there is no game plan short tick attack passing or Jack Charlton kick along and run up the field there is no game plan selection that Stephen Kenny can go with here that will stop us being remarkable underdogs no matter no matter which approach he takes we're going to be massive massive underdogs so I suppose his argument will be well better stick to my principles and be a big underdog than than try and and, and start from scratch all over again um but I do agree with you and I think no matter what he is saying I think he is clever enough that there will be a, a, a level of pragmatism to be fair he he you know he's not just talking for the sake of talking his Dundalk sides were massive underdogs in games in Europe um, against teams with far superior resources and did often come away with, with more possession and that but that's not going to happen tomorrow night like it's you know just the golf, you know. I don't. I in no way. Any. I in no way sound mean to sound overly pessimistic. It's just Stephen Kenny and this Ireland team cannot be judged on how the likes of tomorrow night goes. Okay, I think the Greece Gibraltar ones. They're the ones that he absolutely has to go and win. I'm. I'm actually quite happy that they gave Netherlands such a tank in the other night because at least it gets everybody's mindset into well if we get beaten by 4-0 tomorrow night well the Hollands you know what were we to expect of course that's how it was going to go um, but yeah like the gulf in in player quality is as stark I mean I've read a couple of pieces obviously we were talking about the, the Tommy Conlon one already um, I was in Paris the night of the Thierry Henry handball I don't think the gulf between the two sides has been as big as it is in terms of the standard of player in in quite a long time, Joe. And that's even taken into account that we have some very promising young players coming through. Mm. Andy, I know you flicked through uh, various pieces looking ahead to the game, looking back on previous Ireland-French matches. What grabbed your fancy? Yeah, that's the nice thing about a game like this because when there is that gap, there's only so much you can do in terms of like a tactical analysis or something because you're kind of hamstrung 
France are really good. <laughs> Ireland are, let's say, developing. Um, but one that did jump out was the Tommy Conlon piece, which is titled, it's in this on the Independent, Cry Havoc and Let Slip the Dogs of War. And we've we've had a number of sort of war cries, um, and I suppose it's an analogy that we use uh, sparingly and sometimes not great. But this does seem like one of those occasions where you want to say the guys, lads, you, you dig in. And Tommy goes back and looks at the 1981 match uh, when Owen Hand was managing, and Ireland it was the last time Ireland beat France. And it's just a really nice piece. He's obviously gone back to various newspapers of the time, that, you know, from the press, the Irish Times, and looked at what was read about and talked about at the time. So even the fact that um, the fixture 42 years, years ago was also been, been in, built in advance by Peter Byrne in the Irish Times as one of Dublin's biggest football occasions in years. That's a nice little echo tomorrow night. Um, to indicate the scale of interest, Mel Moffat reported in the Irish press that the media section in Lansdowne Road had a capacity for 112 personnel but the FAI received 220 applications from the written press alone, 54 from France, 12 radio stations and 3 TV networks this is in 1981, <laughs> would be broadcasting this live. So it's just it's a lovely way I think to look at a fixture and say what can I do that's a little bit different and it's really really good. So I'll just read a little bit from the very end where Owen Hand was, was grateful and relieved post-match. Mm-hmm. I'm off the smokes, he wheezed. If I didn't go back in them during the last seven minutes, I never will. But it wasn't just the players who deserved a beer or ten that night. The crowd deserved to wet their whistles too after roaring themselves hoarse for 90 minutes. I'd buy every one of them a pint, joked Hand, if I had the money. But, says Tommy Conlon, John Delaney was the only man who could ever afford <laughs> to do that. <laughs> Lovely call. Yeah. Right. The what last uh, defeat of France. Yeah. yeah, and what I found interesting, Joel, is actually two. There's two articles in the um, Sindo today where I the, the online subscription as well, and just was bouncing between the two for different reasons as to why I was looking at them. The article in the paper uh, doesn't. Sorry, I should say the article online has a picture of the starting team that day, um, and goes through the names in that team. And for some reason, the article in the paper doesn't have it. And I suppose that's nearly what highlighted to me the difference in class. Like I know that was a very strong France team, and you had Platini, but like the Irish team, yeah. Kev- Kevin Moran, Mark Lawrence, Ronnie Whelan, Dave O'Leary, Liam Brady, Frank Stapleton, Chris Hutton, Mick Martin. Jeez, this is a good side. This is a good Irish side. I'm sure they were still big underdogs, but that's that's an impressive looking lineup. Um, so it is. You know, they, I don't think the gap was was as big back then. But um, yeah, it is very. It is definitely a very very good piece that people should should get their eyes on. All right. Uh, one other point, and it's right beside that Tommy Conlon piece. Mm. Uh, fluke or failing? Why do Ireland concede so many long range goals? So since the beginning of 2021, Ireland have conceded 23 goals, nine from outside the box, so 39 percent. This makes us a statistical miracle in some respects. So there was Serbia, that Mitrovic won. There was Luxembourg. People remember the Rodriguez strike. There was Azerbaijan. There was Armenia in June of 22. Uh, Ukraine, June of 22. Armenia, September of 22. Armenia, September of 22. Latvia, uh, March 23. And Latvia, March 23. So freakish or something which is happening too often to be freakish? So I'm in my element today, Joe, because I'm beside a fellow stats nerd. So I am, and we've we've already started it, started the conversation. Not me, he's not you. About. No, no, no. Uh, so I'm a football man, and my instinct is to say it's a bit freakish. That's all. Good. I'm, 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 yeah. Well, I'm a numbers man, and the numbers definitely back up your your gut reply there. Thankfully, 
this is the other article that's different online the great thing about the online version is it shows each goal so it actually under each of those little paragraphs you can actually see the goal which adds another layer to it um, look I didn't go back through them all just had a quick look at, at the ones from the, the game again the other night but my belief is that they're all pretty similar-ish in that XG wise um, 0.03 and 0.07 were the XG's for the two Latvia goals the other night for those who put fairly simply that means 3 in every 100 times would that ball have flown into the back of the net and 7 in every 100 times would the other ball have flown back into the net and they both did um, against us and again a lot of people will scoff at XG and I understand that but there is a, a basis there for it of you know tens of thousands of goals that have been analysed the key thing here for me Joe right is when you're out on a pitch in any sport, a, a football pitch is a pretty big place, okay? It's a pretty big area. You've only got so many pieces that you can move around that area, okay? You cannot possibly cover out all the zones you want. And as a manager planning for a game, you've got to decide, okay, we really want to zone in on protecting this area, and we know that means giving up this area a little bit more. And it's not ideal, but that's the yin and yang that, that goes with it. And, like... It is impossible, absolutely impossible for, for Ireland not to concede chances. So which kind of chances? I would be far, far more concerned if Lat- Latvia scored two goals the other night, you know, from tappings in the six-yard box or, you know, in XG world, you know, XGs of 0.3 or 0.4 or something like that rather than the ones that we're looking at. Um you have to give up a bit of space somewhere. You have to give up a bit of space. And I understand that the article is quite good and he talks to, to, to Dave Henderson and, and, and I understand the point he's making in particular around, you know, he's arguing does the like of a Glenn Whelan in a team stop teams getting off as many shots from there. But again, we're not conceding a huge volume of shots from those areas. We're genuinely not. Again, I've looked at the numbers. We're not conceding a huge volume of shots from those areas. Just everyone that we do concede from there seems to fly into the, into the back of the net for some reason. It's a very unsatisfactory explanation. <laughs> it's, it, it's also one of those things where you think about long rangers, they stick in the mind yeah. pretty well. I know. I can still see the Rodriguez Luxembourg. Yeah. yeah. But, but the point is right. I mean, we're in, we're in an environment in, in football where it, because of the analysis that people have done with looking at tens of thousands and more teams are trying to create chances and opportunities and space in areas that nine times out of ten if you go overseas and overseas is going to give them the benefit so it's fascinating to me that Ireland are in this middle, little bit of fluke so hopefully the other side of this coin might be we've had our bad run mm-hmm. you know no long rangers for a while please feels like we're still in the midst of it looking at the dates here though <laughs> <laughs> gotta be honest not something that's in the distant past by any stretch is it no I would say whilst I do think it's largely just freakish there have been certain occasions where a touch more pressure on the ball was definitely agreed. doable agreed agreed and again so you were reading a piece from Stephen there where he says we just won't come out in a low block um, I understand that but I would encourage them to come up, come out in a mid block um, like Tommy's piece goes on about you know we need to make the first 10-15 minutes blood and thunder and throw everything at them that can't be chasing the ball around their back line because they'll just bop 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 it around you and the next thing they're out the other side and they're, they're true on goal I do think we need to sit off not on the edge of our own 18 but I would say I wouldn't be confronting them until the halfway line mm-hmm. because there's just too much quality there Joel like if you you know you could put on the best press and work on it and training all week and you're trying to box them down the left hand side you're trying to box them in a particular area when you've got that much individual quality they'll get out of a press they'll yeah. get out of a press and the next thing you're wide open and Mbappe does things like he did for the fourth goal um, Friday night 
week. Well, even at times on Friday, the two French centre-halves were put under pressure and you thought, oh, they're in, they're in spot of bother here, the press is good. And then they just put on the afterburners and dribble out themselves. Yeah. And you're thinking, you've got to be very careful. And as for losing the ball in our own half, as we mentioned, that's a yeah. an equally scary Again, prospect. Like you, 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 look, you look at the shape and you would imagine it's, it's likely to stay pretty much well, three centre-backs is, is nailed on it's really just interesting what he does in front of that are, are we 5-4-1 or are we 5-3-2 but I would think no matter what you can't have Evan Ferguson tearing headlessly around between the two centre-halves and if he does go with two up front well then the full-backs are free so I would say listen lads let's give him the first third of the field yeah. and let's put, let's let them have you know however many passes they want up there and, and see if they can pick their way through us because I must say I am increasingly a touch worried. I mean, the November internationals just gone, where Ireland gifted Scotland possession in our own box and mm-hmm. gifted them big chances. Armenia not switched on for several minutes and just so open. That's less likely against France because their brilliance will sharpen Irish minds, I'm sure. But even the Darty pass against Armenia, it's it's just lax. And his defending at Hampden Park, stopping the cross, was was kind of lax. Absolutely. And so. We're doing lots of good things, but there is this vulnerability about Ireland. Um, there's a, and, and even the build-up to the first goal the other night, which is, you know, O'Dowd, a left wing-back, finishing off a move between Smallbone and, and Doherty. So I, I was saying on Thursday's show, it's like an Antonio Conte dream. It's amazing. <laughs> but the build-up to that, Ireland lose the ball. It's a slide tackle, and that's less likely to happen against a sharper, well, better French team. Yeah, so... I don't know, you, you watch Ireland at times and here we are several years into the Kenny era and there's too much nothing possession and I think the opposition almost have their arms crossed saying, well, those patterns are nice but you haven't hurt us at all. And then out of possession we're sometimes a little bit fragile as well. So like, I love that this team don't boot the ball away and I love they've respect for the, the ball but I worry other teams, if they're being brutal about Ireland, would say they're a very nice team to play against at the moment. And uh, akin to that uh, Wes to McLean goal away to Austria, you know, that Argentinian goal against France up the right-hand side, which is direct passing, sharp. That's hurting a team. That's football. And sometimes I think, um, you know, sometimes golf coaches will say, well, that that guy's playing swing golf as opposed to playing golf. Sometimes I think we're playing a bit of swing golf. Yep, yep. And I think... Look, and the last thing in the world I want to do is is jump on the the overhype train around Evan Ferguson, but just as no matter how good he is, all right, just as his his style as a player, he now gives us something a little bit different as well. In that, if you're Nathan Collins and you're inside your own eighteen yard box, I think Stevens directive beforehand is lift your head and see can you find Josh Cullen and that's extremely risky but something I really enjoy is trying to do but part of that was out of necessity as well because Stephen is also thinking well you know for all Troy Parrott's good movement and ability to find pockets and for all Agbeni or Obafemi's pace we don't really have somebody that Nathan Collins can clip it out to who can take it on his chest set himself keep the defender away and then pop it back and let us build from there we, we really I mean David McGoldrick's retirement was 
a real blow. Absolutely. Yeah. He, he's probably the last decent kind of nine that we had who could do that. Yeah. Evan Ferguson can do that. No, it's true. And you can get runners in beyond him and suddenly we can hurt teams. So that, Without that's exciting. A doubt. If, if, yeah. if, if Nathan Collins clips that ball out, Evan Ferguson, and look, this is dreamland stuff, but he clips that ball out. Evan Ferguson pulls it down, sets it back to Will Smallbone and the pace of Ben or Obafemi is away. Smallbone looks to slip it through. Like, that's the prototype of the goal I think we need to try and score um, tomorrow as, night. as opposed to knitting together uh, ticky-tacky yeah. patterns and ripping yeah. a team uh, apart. Andy, anything else in the coverage that caught your eye? Yeah, Shane's got far too enthusiastic there, so I'm going to bring up the... <laughs> Are we talking about the World Cup final there, Shane? Yeah. That goal. Um, oh no, just tomorrow night, just tomorrow night. Sunday World, Roy Curtis writes about terror when we're talking about facing this France team. Um, terror spread like a contagion among Irish supporters watching France fresh from a World Cup final for the ages summarily execute the Netherlands on Friday night. The Stade de France was reimagined as a medieval torture chamber, thumbscrews affixed to orange-shirted players while others were stretched and broken on the rack. Ominously terrifyingly like the clenched fist of a pitiless monster, the four-goal wrecking ball that flattened the Dutch is swinging towards the Aviva. <laughs> the whole piece is like that. It's it kind of sets the scene for abject terror, and then you need Shane to bounce this up. Well, I don't know if I was given as much a chance now. I was just trying to describe a goal that I, in Dreamland we might get, but um, yeah, look, they are. We're unfortunately Monday nights is a, is a train a night in the League of Ireland. Unfortunately, Joe, so I I won't be there. I know, I know. There's Cancel there's no way around it. There's no way around it. There Listen, is, there must be a way around it. Whatever the best you can imagine the effort trying to explain to me, young fella, that he wasn't going to get to see Mbappe in the flesh. But um, look, it will be a brilliant occasion around the place. But um, it'd be. St- absolutely stunned if, just to wrap it up absolutely stunned if uh, we managed to stay anything better than within two goals of this side they're just that good I would think so uh, Shane and Andy staying with us back in one second with the paper review So we'll update you on the GA scores in just a few moments time the headline news has uh, broken to a slightly shocked Paddy Andrews who I think thought I was pranking him initially is Oi. that uh, Dublin GA official just uh, had a the tunnel view of the players running out uh, for their game against Louth and who's there in his boots short socks kit bag under his arm with a substitute uh, jersey on Stephen Cluxton <laughs> Stephen bloody Cluxton Paddy Andrews what is he <laughs> no so how they kept this quiet I don't know do Stephen Cluxton's family know he's at Crow Park today is one of the burning questions but Stephen Cluxton is back in the Dublin panel for today at least if you're looking to me for any information it's Stephen Cluxton we're talking about so it's a complete vacuum who knows what's going on but there he is I mean this is quite something McCaffrey Mannion Cluxton back are we all all in dread again? I don't know. We're in, it's certainly very interesting, but uh, I suppose there's a bit of dread, yeah. It, it is. It's a fascinating dynamic. And like you say, I'm just stunned how they kept it under wraps. I yeah. find it absolutely amazing. Amazing. Uh, so we'll plough on with the papers. We've been talking Ireland-France largely. Lots of rugby coverage of uh, different uh, varieties. Andy, I know obviously you'd have a very keen eye on the rugby coverage. We'll come to the, the women's situation in a moment. Ireland beaten 31-5 by Wales on the men's rugby both Stephen Jones in the Sunday Times and Charlie Morgan in the Telegraph are I would say like a a lot of rugby fans maybe concerned about the yellow red card situation and the havoc it may well play at the World Cup so he says that the action 
Stephen Jones that is the action in green and white last weekend in Dublin was not the problem it was one it was when red and yellow interrupted the match everyone had that sinking feeling are huge games at the World Cup liable to be wrecked by rugby's protective shield against head trauma even when the shield is misused as it was last weekend and he says that you know in the crowd stone cold red card was one reaction I heard as we waited not even a penalty his neighbour said and we had that same reaction play out across the week publicly we had Bernard Jackman on against the head saying it's not even a penalty in my view and we had Brown Driscoll in this studio outline why he absolutely thinks it's red thinks it's red and everything in between so uh, the point that Stephen Jones makes is that rugby might need to follow super rugby here what they do is when an incident like the steward tackle for want of a better phrase happens with Keenan the yellow card is given the player goes to the sin bin and the officials use that 10 minutes for another TMO in the calm of those 10 minutes on his or her own to decide whether that yellow should be upgraded to a red and if not it's a yellow and the player still comes back on after the 10 minutes Mm -hmm. so instead of Jakob Piper and his assistants with the crowd going ooh when it's replayed again and again on a big screen just give the yellow you get on with the game very quickly and then another TMO will quietly take time have 10 minutes to consider maybe make a phone call who knows 10 minutes to consider if the yellow should be upgraded to a red and we might get better decisions it seems like a very sensible suggestion works well in Super Rugby now the week that's been would illustrate that even 10 minutes is not enough to have everybody in agreement but it might increase the odds I suppose Andy this is a no-brainer no pun intended goodness me when we're talking about head trauma and rugby Uh, yeah now we're only we're into a young Super Rugby season where they are trialling it Um, I've seen it run through a few times including where they had to upgrade it to a red after the review it to me it's a really, really no-lose, no-regrets move for rugby union. You remove that element of where sometimes we can we, we can sort of say, what, what is he taking so long about? Okay. Now, the official isn't sitting there wanting to take time. It's just there's a lot of pressure. And between the referee, their assistant referees, and the TMO, they're talking various aspects through and usually in a language which might not always be clear to us but it's based in points of rugby law so it's almost they're talking in their own code at times and then of course for the people in the stadium we don't know what's going on Mm. we don't know what they're talking about Um, so the trial as it is works really well you flash the yellow card if if it seems to be yellow and you're only really talking about yellow versus red you get that player off the field you let that person then in the booth without the crowd quietly get on with it and then um, Stephen Jones is a nice summary here was the idea in Super Rugby is that an official will be allowed to make a call in silence with no one howling and no one shouting at him take your time yellow confirmed or upgraded to red yeah. now what they're doing in Super Rugby is that it only gets upgraded to their 20 minute yellow card the trial that we had on this side of the world as well and we've, we've ditched it um, Charlie Morgan reports that if it does go uh, it would be a permanent red for the World Cup they wouldn't be dealing with a 20 minute red but I think you're, you're, you're point is well made that with the steward Keenan decision maybe they would have landed on yellow but it absolutely could have been 
and uh, not even a penalty. And um, there's a source who uh, Charlie Morgan cites liberally, said was involved in the refereeing in this Six Nations, and that source said, with hindsight, the judgment ruled that a yellow card was sufficient. But we need to acknowledge in the Stewart incident, it was a very rare scenario. We don't get a decision that could have three potential outcomes very often, which I thought was a point very well made. Because, yeah. like, um, full disclosure, I was at the game. I was kind of thinking that kind of looks like awkward but play on and I could completely see why the red card was given at the same time um, but I, to me to use your term no brainer yeah the Farrell's family dynamic uh, the Shakespearean quality of it caught your eye Paul Kimmage is writing about that Shane yeah yeah well just the dynamic itself I'll, I'll be honest I <laughs> it was gas I, as I say I wouldn't be massively immersed in rugby union by any stretch of the imagination but I did comment last week at home just in my home house I just said to my wife I said that, that whole Farrell thing I said it really really interests me or fascinates me how that actually works in terms of their conversations with each other um, and then I opened the paper today and, and, and saw this so I was I was really really interested to see it um, I suppose firstly like Andy Farrell as a as a as a person really really interests me I for whatever reason I've never overly got sucked in by rugby union but, but took madly into rugby league in the in the late 90s um, and particularly I suppose that Wigan Warriors team himself and Radzinski and Jason Robinson and guys like that and he just struck me as a fella who had leader printed across his forehead from a very 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 young age um, and then I started to hear about the fact that he had had a, a, a child extremely young. Um, and I think that does feed into all this as well. The fact that there's 16 years between these two people. Um, I've got some very, very good friends who are 16 years either older or younger than me. Do you know what I mean? I think 16 years is not a massive gap. You can be, you know, of very similar thinking and, you know, very, very close friends to somebody who might be 16 years. So that, to me, alters the, the dynamic almost to a, to a certain extent as well. Um, and I suppose, having read the piece as well, um, I just don't know how... I just don't know how he does it. I genuinely don't know how he does it. Um, the thoughts of... You know, my young fella's into all kinds of sports at the moment. He's into hurling. He has been brought up in a parish different to the parish that I'm from. Could I end up managing my parish against the parish that he now lives in in 10 years' time when he's playing senior hurling? Like, what do you say in a team talk? Like, did... did I'm judging by remind me who who makes the comments to you Joe in, in studio last week this is how bad I am Rob Carney in, in advance of kickoff last week at the U Stadium and Rob Carney who played for obviously a number of years with Andy Farrell part of the setup, I asked him about Farrell versus Farrell mm. and he said when Andy first came into the squad and we would discuss own and team meetings mm. and some of the reviews there were times when he would step out of the room and as players, we were always very conscious. We'd be talking about Owen and, you know, looking around, where's dad? Rob Kearney continues, fast forward to the 2018 Grand Slam game at Twickenham. We're in the team hotel before the match. Owen comes up on the screen and Andy stops it and goes, when you get your hands on Owen today, and I won't repeat fully what was said, said Rob, but he said it with such emotion and everyone in the room just went, wow, if he can talk about his son like that, 
that's how much this performance means to him. That's how much he wants to win today. And I put it to him, that was the first time you remember him referencing Owen. And Carney says, it was the first time, and what a time to do it, a few hours before a Grand Slam game against England at Twickenham. It was one of those moments where your hair stands up. And I said, previously, you suspected he stepped out of the room. And Carney said, he stepped out of the room. It was probably awkward for him. It was awkward for us as players. It was awkward for Joe Schmidt because Joe would be highlighting some of Owen's weaknesses in front of his dad. It was all just very weird. And then that moment before the Grand Slam game, it was a surreal situation. It really was. Like I'm not, I'm not going to put words in, in Rob Carney's mouth, right? But if, if the, when you get your hands on Owen, if the, the information that followed that statement was technical... As in, you know, I don't know, give me the equivalent of showing him onto your weaker foot in soccer, whatever that is in rugby. If the information being given there was was technical, well, then I think Rob could have spoken, given us the exact words that he said, I if that makes sense. We can safely say it was in <laughs> keeping with what defence coaches say about what to do when you get your hands and on the other player, number 10. Of that kind, exactly. Um, and that's, that's my point here is that's. That's extremely, extremely difficult to do, I would think. I would, you know, I'm trying to think ahead to being in his shoes there. I actually, to be honest with you, when I I, I managed our senior hurlers the year before last, I went and spoke to a guy that I was looking to bring in as a selector. And he, the exact reason he knocked me back was, well, hold on, I could be a selector here for Adonai Earl. My own young fella is playing for Bursley Cotton. I just can't do it to myself, Shane. And I went, completely understandable. And this is at the lowest, you know what I mean? This is mm. at club standard leash hurling. Multiply this by one million for what these two guys are, are facing into. Um, I don't know how he does it. I really, really don't. Do you not think, though, that the Farrells, you know... This is all they've ever known. Yes. Tough, hard nosed professionalism. This is life and this is what you do. And it's very compartmentalized. And smash him, whatever he said, I don't know exactly. But like he'll be fine. He's a tough egg, and I'll see him afterwards. And, and all is fair. And he and Owen will understand that. And I understand that this is the world that we've inhabited since our teenage years in both instances. I, I would think that's how mm. he would see it. If anything, the surprise for me, what I found most fascinating was the revelation that he would step out of the room yeah, previous was, to that. Yeah. I would have thought from 2013 he would have been talking about the opposition son or not the way he was in 18. That for me was the surprising thing. I'd, I'd wonder, is there something else I'll mention there? Was there a change in the dynamic, not between the Farrells or between Andy Farrell and the Ireland squad, but Andy Farrell's place in the coaching team? Was there a difference there in terms of that dynamic with Joe? That's the question I'd love to ask both sides of that, which is, how come there was this difference? Because if you're like, if you're um, an international coach, would you be happy that you've got this source of information about a key opposition player and you can't get that information? You can't. That would, to me, be another side of this whole argument. Because I, like you, I would view the Farrells as being a very, very unusual family. Okay, in that how many people are 16 years apart playing in the same professional sporting environment at the highest of levels when you look at Andy's background in rugby league, he's now coaching at the highest level in rugby union and Owen Farrell, we know what he's done. I would absolutely think that by right back to the Saracens era, like that's just their environment. It's seen as completely normal in a, in a way that we cannot possibly mm, comprehend. Yeah, I don't know. I, I get that, Joe. Yeah, completely. But to, you're, you still have to utter the words with passion and meaning. Hit my son hard. 
no, hit, it's true. It's not hit my son hard. Who it, says that? You're not. You're not saying Shelmont was left. Yeah. You know. <laughs> Who you says get, when that? you get your hands on own, you make sure everything okay. inside you tells you that you hit the person who hits your son. Can I, Not can that you direct people to hit your son. Can I offer one little extra here before we leave this? Um, my son beat me four games to nil at chess yesterday. <laughs> He's six. If anyone wants to, you know, just hit him really hard for me, yeah. I'm kind of okay with that right now. Yeah. <laughs> um, just one last uh, point on the. Six Nations men's rugby that was Hugh Farley I think makes a, a fair point disrespected Schmidt waiting in long grass for Ireland so he starts off by just charting the extent to which Joe Schmidt and I think people are aware of this now Joe Schmidt was very aware of what was being said in the media he monitored uh uh, journalist very closely and uh, Hugh Farley fell into that bracket and he remembers publishing a story that Keane Healy was going to miss a Leinster game when Joe was Leinster coach and it was on the back pages and he got a phone call from Joe Schmidt that day angry that this information had found its way onto the pages do you not see how this helps the opposition asked Joe Schmidt repeatedly do you not want us to win the game Hugh Farley had to explain that the paper was independent of Leinster anyway they won the game there was no lasting acrimony and they had a pretty good relationship he writes exhaustive media analysis is but one facet of Schmidt's defining attention to detail approach but it remained an unhelpful obsession and it proved increasingly problematic so uh, the implication is he will absolutely have noticed the way his legacy has been talked down Farley thinks it's wrong Schmidt remains an exceptional coach and an exceptional human being uh, now like Warren Gatland before him he has plenty of personal motivation to put one over on Irish rugby uh, Farley calls the revisionism on Schmidt is be- it's beyond disrespectful it's obscene and it could well come back to haunt us Joe is waiting in the long grass and he says he may not have been able to escape Ireland's World Cup hex but two European Cups back to back Six Nations titles test win in South Africa Grand Slam uh, busting 111 years of history by being New Zealand and then backing it up makes Schmidt the most successful coach in Irish rugby history Yet switch on the radio, TV, pick up a paper, scroll your phone for rugby coverage and you'd swear Joe Schmidt has been a disaster when it compared to the current regime. Uh, consistently hammered. And he says people have short memories. Anytime I have to say I ask a Joe Schmidt question now, I do couch it in. Joe Schmidt was amazing. And I mean that very sincerely. However, it's fair to say there have been some improvements in the Farrell era, etc., etc. And on we go. Because it does feel like his achievements are overshadowed by 19 in particular and the World Cup failures and I put 15 down to bad luck in many ways the injury situation as much as anything 19 things fell apart sure but the legacy has taken more of a blow than I ever thought when he was sailing off into the sunset it's it's weird it's as if because okay the World Cups are when we get to this stage as Ireland have been for the last I suppose three four cycles Mm. that's how Ireland coaches are measured Grand Slams are brilliant we should not take them for granted Championships great his work with Leinster brilliant the very end of the era was not an attractive style of rugby that was being played and to my when I read that Hugh Farley piece I was like yes that's what people are seeing that's what people are remembering but everything that Andy Farrell has done has been built on this foundation that Joe Schmidt built and it was a foundation that brought us success like we really have never known at a consistent level so I, I read this and I was going yeah I'm absolutely saying that I'm absolutely reading that I'm absolutely hearing it and it's not right. Maybe in the rush to to praise the current team, I think Farley, Farley is kind of getting without 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 coming out and saying it. 
there's a bit of we'll stick the knife in now because we didn't have a brilliant time with Joe. It right? does it does imply that, yeah. Yeah. That there's almost a a degree of personally we didn't find him easy to deal with, therefore there's an extra freedom now in castigating his regime. Little bit. That that comes through but two thirds way through the piece. And just out of the piece you read actually. Um and I'm not sure that's fair either. But it is, to my mind, it, it is inarguable that the sentiment he describes has come through loud and clear, including from players. But that's the thing. I mean, Andrew Porter, who seems like world's nicest man, even just a couple of weeks ago in conversation with David Walsh, talked about counting the speed bumps on the way to Carton House out of sheer dread, the stress of the environment. Whereas now his fiance jokes, geez, you can't wait to get away from me to get in there. All of the players, I mean, the experienced ones, O'Mahony, Keen Healy have said it's the most enjoyable environment they've ever been a part of. Uh, I mean, you don't want your ex-partner with their new partner to say, this is the most enjoyable relationship I've ever been in. Uh, so the implication is clear, you know, and Schmidt will pick up on that. I'd say he's hurt by it. He's more sensitive than he might have let on. Well, I, I found it very very interesting that he does engross himself that much in what's in the media and what's said that in the media about very, very well known in the sector really, at the time yeah. yes he, I had a file he was fastidious there were report rumours whether they're true or not of like a file and yeah. it would have a good sense of what each journalist was saying because it, it, it's amazing you see I suppose and people are I suppose you just have to remind yourself that people are are just people because I would have thought like I would be like that uh, you know I would keep an eye out for all kinds of League of Ireland talk and at times I'll you know at times I'll justify it to myself by saying well I might pick up you know a little bit of information here or there about opposition if I'm keeping an eye on the different podcasts or the different you know articles now let's be some quite often you're looking to see well what are they actually saying about you let's be completely honest about but you look at guys like this and you think well they're operating at a different level they don't care what anybody says about them in in my head that but that's obviously completely not the case um, doesn't matter how high a level you're, you're operating are you are uh it would be interesting to see now if the uh, IRFU comes guys start putting a nice couple of little pieces out there maybe with you know interviews and it's about the, the long relationship and happy relationship between Irish rugby and New Zealand rugby and painting Joe in a very positive light and you know just again to sort of sow the seeds of um, don't hurt us Joe mm. don't please was, it, was he overly sensitive to it would it, would it, have, been, would it have been perceived that he's overly sensitive it's hard it? to know because publicly he never gave any sense that he was watching things closely Okay. so I don't know if he felt that he was doing it in a very dispassionate professional way to keep a a uh, good feel of the temperature or if it was that more human like, what are they saying about me don't bloody read it unless if you're going to be overly sensitive about it yeah, we don't know we don't know. And there was the other side of it as well, Joe, where just I'd, I might get little, you know, I'm having chats with people. They might say, listen, you know, he reads everything. He reads everything. And he'll then go and ask people behind the scenes to check stuff, mm. you know. And that might be a load of work, to, work for them, but it's actually, that, that's not taking a slide at something. It's actually saying objectively, they've written this. Is it true? Mm. You want to have a pretty thick neck, Joe? We were... Uh preparing for a game last week so I was listening to an opposition's fans podcast to see if I could pick up some team news the host repeatedly referred to me as Phil Mitchell <laughs> but was he complimentary with your managerial skills you can take anything if he said you're a good manager so that's the men's rugby the women's rugby 
photo on the back page of the mail a tough day McWilliams we've got to learn from this and get better 31 points to 5 it was 26 nil at half time the context here being Wales turned professional just over 14-15 months ago Ireland more recently so Wales probably have a year long head start on Ireland the gap has widened significantly it would appear Ireland up front were dominated completely a bit better in the second half the point here is that finishing third in the Six Nations is very important because there is the World XV competition later in the year which will be for the top tier countries you have to finish third or above in the Six Nations to get into that I think that's unlikely for Ireland I think they'll be fighting it out for the wooden spoon frankly is how they looked yesterday Uh, the coverage is I'd say pretty good Andy in that it's not shying away from where Irish women's rugby is but there is an acknowledgement of the wider context as well yeah and that's the thread which I think goes through a number of pieces here Um, Hamish Stewart spells it out pretty well up front in the in the, the times piece um, both with quotes and, and descriptions. So this is the first time two essentially fully professional sides had met in a Wales-Ireland's women's game of rugby. Um, and then here's the things they have in common. So both sides had a number in the mid to high 20s of full-time or well-supported players. And that's an interesting phrase. Um, with Wales announcing 25 professional contracts in Ireland, including 29 players um, with professional deals. Uh, but then you're looking at, and this is referenced a number of times, where... Wales have all of their players based in England in their top flight league um, and a good clutch of them I think it's seven or eight at one club Gloucester yeah yeah um, you've got Ireland in a com- completely different place when it comes to that um, and that's where you get into sort of I think some of the structural questions um, Sinead Kassan um, referenced it in her piece in the Sunday, Indep- in, in the Sunday Independent um, and then there's a, a long piece um, which is the second of a two-parter by John Cronin John Cronin is the director of rugby at Railway Union um, He's talking about the structure of the women's game in the widest possible degree. And I think that the question that he had in last week's piece, which he repeats here, is, I think, a great starting point from my point of view, which is how would we organise women's rugby if we didn't have men's rugby? So I think that gets to the heart if he doesn't mention here, even the fact that a women's Lions tour. Is that the right thing, the best thing you could possibly do for the women's rugby game right now? For me outside, and here I declare my hand, I am not a women's rugby expert, but it seems weird to me to try and do that before addressing some of the other issues in terms of simple um, equality, for want of a better term, across the game, equality of opportunity, equality of preparation, okay? so it's 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 really long. There's there's not really a huge amount I can go into here because you really are, are going all over the place. But starting point here was that, um, and then in terms of the understanding female sport, ninety percent of female athletes are recreational and sport as part of their lifestyle. Ten percent are serious and could be part, could be the best at any game they pursue. Sport is their lifestyle. He's setting up the piece because he's saying in order to cater for that ten percent. That 10% is going to be the people who play camogie, the people 100%. who play gad, the people who play soccer, the people who play rugby. And women's sport is different than men, especially on this island, because the playing pool is smaller. The games are not as developed technically 
as the men's game that has been going for so much longer at mm. the elite level. Someone like Sarah Rowe can turn their hand to a different sport and, and I absolutely accept that turn their hand is actually to completely underplay yeah, yeah. their talent and what they have to do to get into, which will be a third uh, different elite sport for yeah. Sarah Rowe. Um, but that's the pool you're looking at. So when Cronin's looking at this piece, he's saying, if we break it down, who are we targeting? How do we make sure that there's the facilities all over the country because not everyone can come to Dublin. So we need to look at how we set up a franchise in five major urban areas and probably have four in Dublin and set it up like that. He goes into the funding model, you split in terms of public-private. If you have 100 grand, um, you'll get 100 grand if you can raise two. And suddenly, from an 800 grand investment, you get 2.4 million into the game. Now look, all of these things are simply, it's a business plan. That's what we're reading here. Yeah. It's an inspirational one, but certainly I think it's it's worth reading in the context of what we're seeing going on it, in the women's game. They it have to have their house in order, Andy, don't they? To have any hope for exactly that reason. The pool is so small, so much smaller. And then, like you didn't even name, like obviously the transfer, like Katie Taylor now has female boxing very much in the limelight. In, and then go outside the, the, the bloody country. In Leash, I think we've lost half a dozen um, female Gaelic footballers to, to, to Aussie rules uh, as well. Like the, the battle for the bit for the for the talent that's there is incredible. You have got to have your house in order. You don't stand a chance of, of attracting mm. your sport. Because we have, I mean, again, the advantage which we always, I think, maybe didn't realise we had in, in men's sport mm. is probably multiplied in women's. We have people who play loads of sports in yeah. an early age. It's a huge technical and, and injury-proof advantage as they go through later life. Yeah. He does have the numbers. 188,000 females play Gaelic games in Ireland. 8,000 play rugby. So that's how shallow the pool is. And he does agree with your point on just mimicking what the men's sides do. He says, anytime women's rugby has followed men's competition structures, it's hindered us. So he says, let's think blank canvas all the way here and go from there. But regardless, Ireland are behind the curve at the moment in Six Nations terms. And while they'll point to their sevens and say that's in far better shape, which it is, the reality is that the free-to-air games are the 15s aside Six Nations games, which are on TV, and Ireland could lose every one of them this year. There's a number of, a couple of different um, writers made the point that lads, even if the Sevens players had been playing, they wouldn't have got the ball. No, they were annihilated up front, actually, is the truth. And there was an 18-year-old thrown in on her debut against a player who I think had several stone on her. Yep. Um, so it was, it was it was chastening, and you can see it in the photographs as they walk off. It's like, oh my god, we're being twenty six nil half time kind of situation, and they France next. So, um, so it's tricky. Moralizing. It's interesting if to see the um, the difference as as the Welsh rugby union get their structures changed at the DGM of the weekend. Yeah. Um, I can't remember who it was, so forgive me. But one said it's amazing that they got the women's side of it right while all this mess had been going on in the yeah. background in Wales. Certain irony. Yes. Uh, Division 4 results, by the way, and we'll update you on the live GA in just a moment, but Division 4, we have results across the board. London 2-8, Leash 7-6. Seven goals, six points in Ryslip. Leash won that game comfortably. Uh, Wicklow beat Waterford in Waterford, 2-8 to eight points. And then a crunch game, Sligo 2-11, Leitrim 1-15. So Sligo winners away to Leitrim. All that means is that in Division 4, Sligo and Wicklow have been promoted to Division 3. Uh, Half-time between Dublin and Louth, Dublin leading by five points to four. 
is uh, where we are. I'll update you on the other scores in just a moment. The headline news being that Stephen Cluxton, to everybody's surprise, I mean, I'm sure some of his teammates knew, but uh, he jogged out as part of the panel today. So Stephen Cluxton, for today at least, and I presume for the year ahead, is part of the Dublin Senior Football Panel once again. We'll take a short break. Andy and Shane staying with us. Paper review continuing here in Off the Ball. Paddy Andrews is at Crow Park for Stephen Cluxton's Dublin against Louth, Paddy. So has that news sunk in, by the way? Cluxton's back in the Dublin panel, your, your phone hopping? The phone, the old WhatsApp group is off the charts at the minute. It hasn't seen as much action in the last couple of years. So look, it has sunk in a little bit. I'm delighted. And the atmosphere around Crow Park for the Dublin fans is exactly the same. It's, it's incredible news for Dublin. On the pitch, 44 minutes gone. It, it's kind of gone as we expected. It's eight points to four to Dublin. Loud have only scored two points from play so far in the game. And that kind of structured defence, Dublin are starting to kind of break that down as, as we enter into the final quarter of the game. But um, like I say, that's... Not really the main story here today, Joe. No, they better. They have to bring him on, surely. I, we were talking about that. Other good news for Dublin is if that's not enough. Paul Mannion is actually back on the bench as well. He was a late addition for for Dublin as well. So I I suspect we probably will see both of those guys um, before the end of the game. Um, Fully loud. I've just had a goal chance there and a brilliant save from David O'Hanlon. So uh, he's definitely putting his hand up to try and keep Stephen Cluxton out of the team. But. Um, I think the Dublin supporters, it would be a perfect Sunday if you see both Stephen Cluxton and Paul Mannion back on the pitch for Dublin before the end of the game. OK, we'll chat it full-time. Paddy Andrews, thanks very much. About uh, 54, 55 minutes gone in uh, that game. Elsewhere in Division 1, the short version is it looks like Galway will join Mayo in the league final and it looks like after nine years in Division 1, Monaghan will go down alongside Donegal. Obviously, a lot can change in the next uh, 12 minutes plus out of time, but it's Galway uh, 1-10, Kerry 12 points that's in Galway we have Roscommon beating Donegal I couldn't get much worse for Donegal 15 points to 8 we have Tyrone and Armagh 12 points apiece which could be significant uh, for Monaghan because they do lead Mayo Mayo 11 points Monaghan 1-9 so if Tyrone were to do Monaghan a favour and beat Armagh then suddenly Monaghan would be out of the relegation places so it is on a knife edge Division 1 and uh, in Division 2 relegation already settled uh, latest there Clare beating Limerick by 11 points to 3 as we just heard there from Paddy Dublin ahead against Loud Kildare 8 points Mead 3 points and then Derry are 9 points to 6 up away to Cork we're going to jump back into the Sunday papers with Andy McGeady and Shane Keegan so we've touched on the rugby we've touched on Ireland France um, speaking of the GAA I think um, you both picked out Mick Foley writing about the league at large uh, the misery of Donegal is touched upon as well yeah um, the Donegal situation at the moment Joe just I, I find absolutely amazing I suppose on, it was bad enough having one crisis but they've managed to have two crises uh, very very close to each other and, but with, with the first the, the senior setup and the academy setup um, I had been keeping a very close eye on, on the academy stuff again it would be an, an area that overlapped with my day job and I'd be keeping an eye on it like you know, I look at, at our setup in Leash and what we wouldn't give for either either a, a former star of the county team to come back and say, listen, I'll drive the academy over the next 10 years and I've got some good, good ideas. Or somebody who maybe didn't have a high profile playing career, but has a serious um, academic background and has gone on and done degrees and masters and, and has that academic background and can fall back on that. 
Donegal have found themselves in a situation where the one person is both I mean it's an absolute dreamland stuff it's absolute dreamland stuff how they can go and manage to make a hames of it from there and disenfranchise the person in Carl Lacey's case here who seems to have universal backing almost across the county from the player the, the players within the academy from parents within the academy I'm hearing was a huge huge part of it as well um, and from what, what, what were we saying during the week 40 or so coaches who've walked with him I mean it's just it's, it's flabbergasting and, and obviously Cahar again had the, the initial brilliant piece on it but Michael Foley just builds on it again um, and uh, I think it's is it his piece or is it uh, Mark O'Shea's one of them just contrast Donegal I suppose to Loud and I know it's easy to pick out Loud because everything is going well results wise at the moment but the point is that the reason things are going well results wise is because everything has been done correctly away from the pitch and that's like can you imagine Peter Fitzpatrick who when it was up in Dundalk you would have heard a huge amount of talk about Peter Fitzpatrick and what an unbelievable job he was doing and again he seemed to be a guy who I won't say universally liked but universally applauded almost even people who had there was a begrudging disrespect from some quarters for him up there as you can often get with, with people who ruffle feathers and stuff like that like there is no way under Peter Fitzpatrick's watch the likes of a guy like Carl Lacey would have been allowed to get away um, you look at the senior setup; it looked like they had a scenario where they had potentially a ticket of Rory Kavanagh being assisted by Jim McGuinness and Michael Murphy possibly and they managed to make a hands of that As, and it's just flabbergasting how and it, it can only be politics like if you just put at the centre of this what is best for the players both at academy level and what is best for the players both in terms of the Donegal senior team I mean there's a very obvious outcome and a very clear way of, of doing things and yet it hasn't happened in either case why? In um, Mick Foley's piece in the Sunday Times the headline is despair around Donegal uh, reflects going crisis uh, this isn't the most important issue but I suppose it speaks volumes as well so it's just funny uh, if it wasn't so serious when Donegal County Board called for a snap meeting last Tuesday for a Thursday night they kept the agenda simple the Donegal Academy and a message on Wednesday added meat to the bones noting that the meeting was attended to address the recent media uh, scrutiny and so they decided to have this meeting behind closed doors. They wanted it absolutely private. Uh, but placing a seal on the door isn't enough anymore. What transpired, writes Mick, was the leakiest four-hour in-camera meeting in the history of the genre. Blow-by-blow accounts appeared all evening on social media like a live blog. By Friday morning, there was a rough transcript <laughs> of the meeting doing the rounds. Uh, most of the newsworthy items were reported by lunchtime. If the board continue their policy of keeping the media out, they might have to borrow from the old Jim McGuinness playbook and ask every delegate to deposit their mobile phone in a bag before the meeting begins so again not the most important issue but when it rains it pours Well I'm reminded of what we just talked about with the Joe Schmidt file because you keep going the, critici- the criticisms of the media were familiar the Irish news for an in-depth report on the collapse of the academy um, Orty and Sean Gavin for describing Donegal as shambolic on League Sunday that weekend and Joanne Cantwell for apparently letting him yeah, I like that <laughs> what you meant to do <laughs> no don't say it Sean but again it's highlighted again like so you've got all that spinning out from Donegal and the two people that, that Mark O'Shea compares it to or contrasts as I should say with are, as I've said are, are Peter Fitzpatrick and Loud and obviously Dublin because again they just seem to always have their house in order and John Costello is just I mean how you know how you know I look at the FAI and you know John Delaney leaving how Gary Keegan or John Costello wasn't brought in there I, I really really don't know in, in some capacity whatever capacity but 
How the hell have Dublin, <laughs> Dublin managed to keep Stephen Cluxton under wraps like this and yet we have every single word of a meeting that went on up in Donegal? I, I, look, I, I, I just... There, it's it's absolutely all over the place. Particularly as I say, the academy side of it just makes and but it does appear that I think they are going to have to get him back. I do think he will come back. I think there's that much pressure on them now, and have been backed into that much of a corner. And the statement they released, um, I think he, I think he will end up back. Here are my list of demands, Donegal County Board. Well, fair play, <laughs> them, list them, go for it. He absolutely can. Um, um, story which I suspect went under the radar, given that there is so much going on in various sports over the last week or so surrounds uh, world athletics in particular. So this is David Walsh, back page of the Sunday Times. World athletics have declared its position on three contentious issues. So uh, they've banned transgender athletes from women's competitions. They have retained the ban on Russian and Belarusian athletes and they have tightened the rules relating to differences in sex development athletes. The most famous, I suppose, being Castor Semenya. So uh, now, and I mean, in a way, Castor Semenya spent her life uh, in and out of courtrooms uh, winning a decision, then that decision being overturned, then going back in and winning a decision and then it being overturned and winning a decision. And now we're at uh, another uh, juncture, which again I have no doubt will be appealed, but uh, World Athletics says that DSD athletes must lower their testosterone level to 2.5 uh, nanomoles per litre, and uh, we'll we'll see where that goes. Um, again, it doesn't feel like we've ever, ever reached a, a, an end point on that particular uh, toing and froing. On the uh, general reportage of the story, he notes that the New York Times reported the ban on Russian and Belarusian athletes strangely without mentioning the ruling on transgender athletes. Most other news outlets outlets considered the ban on transgender athletes the most important decision, uh, whilst also referring to the positions of uh, on Russia and DST athletes. So, uh, Walsh charts the thinking. Uh, he, you know, talks about how Russia see the Olympics as very important. Uh, obviously hosted the Winter Olympics and they see it as a platform to display their national might. The Olympics matter to Russia. Uh, He concludes his piece without going into his thinking, although to be fair, he probably has done it in more depth in the past. But he just says on all three issues, World Athletics uh, has got it right. So, yeah, you may well have missed that. That's World Athletics. And uh, the uh, swimming body as well have joined World Athletics in uh, these rulings. So uh, FINA, Swimming World's governing body, have said athletes from uh, those same countries won't be allowed to compete. So they won't be um, in the athletics or in the pool. So effectively, nowhere of any value to Russia, really. You picked this piece out, Andy? Yeah. Um, for a similar reason, as I think um, you might have spotted the same thing. If you look at the, the first and last lines of this article, Walsh starts by saying World Athletics has declared its position on these three issues, but it ends up with Walsh declaring his position very clearly. He's saying they've got it right. Um, That's interesting to me because I think, okay, we can hear. We would, I think, mostly say, okay, Russia and Belarus not competing Mm -hmm. is something we probably think is okay for the reasons you you mentioned earlier. Um, But then when we get into transgender, that's something which as a society we're still dealing with. I think the balance of rights is 
a very, very delicate issue. It's mentioned in the piece as well, but with regard to the DST athletes, which is just fundamentally different to transgender. Yeah. And then when we talk about transgender, we, we haven't just mentioned it here. Anyone who hasn't read the piece, it's the, the new position is that an athlete, um, there's writes Welsh, who goes through male puberty um, will make physiological gains that may not be neutralised by a hormone suppressant. Um, Though it might sound like a huge change is in banning such athletes, it's not. Asked how many athletes would be affected by the stricter policy, a WA World Athletics spokesperson replied that there are no transgender athletes competing internationally. So again, it's very important, I think, when we are talking about these issues, they can get conflated. Um, they're different. People like Castor Semenya were brought up as women. Um, they are women. They just have a very different way that their body has developed. Um, I suppose I have no firm view on this, and that's why I'm fascinated that Welsh has it. Mm. That's not to say he's got it wrong, by the way. No, sure, I accept that point. Yeah, the, the DSD athletes is incredibly complex. I like none of us understand the science there. We just don't. And uh, like I said, I feel very sorry that Samania has been in and out of courtrooms across her entire career. And uh, I suspect that's going to continue. As for the transgender issue, I think Shane, the last time you were in in the paper, Sorry, you, we football, wasn't it? Was it the LGFA or who? Yes, were talking that's about, right. Wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah taking yeah. a stance on it. We talked about it at length. I think what we can certainly say is that, and Walsh makes the point as well, positions across sport are hardening towards the banning of transgender athletes. That seems to be the the growing trend, and that's where we are for the foreseeable. I think the going through puberty is going to be a very going through male puberty is going to be a line which because it is quite black and white is going to be seen as easy to draw for people both in the sport and looking on yeah. rightly or wrongly yeah yeah Ross Joker's been on the show explaining it at, at length and he, he you know strongly says look the science on this is simple but the the wider conversation about well what's sport is and, and who it should be for is more complicated conversation but he says one, the, the science is is not even that complicated to, to get your head around Can I pick up the Russia point yeah. um, because there's a good piece in the Observer today by Jonathan Liu talking about Russia what they're doing now in football Okay, Russia are persona non grata in terms of European football so they are playing Iran they're playing Iraq they have entered, um, they've signed up to play in the inaugural Central Asian Championship in Kyrgyzstan and Uzbekistan this summer. Um, it's a very interesting piece because no matter what we might think here, Russia is still trying to get games. There's a number of different angles here. One of them is, yes, they want to see their team playing. It's a very good way to go rah, 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 to fill stadiums with the national colours. But also they don't want to lose their players. If the players stop getting games as well, that's very important. They could absolutely have a player exodus. Um, but it's a good piece, recommended if you have the Observer today. Mm. And I presume FIFA have banned Russia, haven't they? Have FIFA banned Russia? I don't know about FIFA, but UEFA certainly have. UEFA certainly have. I just wonder... Would FIFA really ban anyone if they wanted to? <laughs> I think they have like they weren't at the World Cup they have banned them I didn't get a chance to read that little piece but I was just wondering under like who's sanctioning those games um, good luck finding the game on television or tracking down a match report on the FIFA website but seamlessly almost imperceptibly Russia has returned to the international football treadmill and who are they playing did you say um, they've played Iran right, um, right, a right. diplomatically fitting result a 1-1 draw is this like the pariahs of geopolitical 
discourse playing each other in football their own mini competition um, seems to be yeah. but Russia on Russia on manoeuvres as he says next fixture Saudi Arabia is it yeah it's a good piece I hadn't spotted that um, any final bits or pieces people would like to mention um, I suppose just the general overlook of, of the Premier League um, and the running of the Premier League which one of the papers is the Telegraph I think was it was saying that it's it's potentially the most exciting um, Jonathan Norcroft did it and like Jonathan Norcroft that's right he did times. a great job because this is I mean Premier League coverage is so saturated and so everywhere uh, but he says that this season is like no other and so he says it's going to be the first in which the English top flight clubs have played matches relating to the same campaign across 12 consecutive months beginning with the Community Shield last July ending with the FA Cup final on the first Saturday of June so for 12 months of the last year English top flight football has been available to you Shane Keegan nods uh, <laughs> glowing yeah. uh, but that's not all there's been a striker like no other Erling Haaland who, if he stays fit, maintains his form, will, says Jonathan Northcroft, obliterate Andy Cole's record of 34 goals in the Premier League season, uh, spending, like no other season, 600 million sterling in two transfer windows, and then nine Premier League sackings. So we are one short of the overall record for sackings in a season with nearly 30% of games to be played. So in all sorts of ways, this season is throwing up a bunch of interesting things. The relegation situation is nuts. Oh. The, like the, the amount of points separating Crystal four, Palace. Four, four points separating the bottom nine, yeah. uh, Joe, which is apps. And that obviously is the reason why we have seen so many seconds and we'll see a few more to come yet as yeah. well. That's for sure. Um, but it is, it, it is it, it, it's a tremendously interesting run in. Look, there are really only three things that people care about and that's who's going to get relegated, who's going to qualify for the Champions League and who's going to win the league title and all of those are very very much still to be decided I think we have genuine um, races for each of those I still think City might reel in Arsenal but I think it's going to be fascinating to see if they can with every passing week it looks more and more like I'll be I'll be proven wrong I suppose um, um, the race for the Champions League is the race nobody wants to win obviously true <laughs> so that's a different a different kind of race can any of them get their act together in time but um yeah, I just think the relegation situation is is absolutely crazy. I have seen situations before where, you know, it could go up as far as twelfth to thirteenth still not being safe, but usually the bottom one, if not bottom two, are done. Yeah, and it's just one team, you know, that them. last one. But literally at this moment in time, the team sitting in twelfth could finish twentieth. Like mm. they could absolutely finish in twentieth position, um, which is is crazy and is going to lead, unfortunately, to a couple more seconds. I would think before the, I think fellas who've been sacked and been replaced may yet be sacked again if that makes if yeah. that makes sense things are so so heated down there sure, these lads getting sacked it's like winning the lotto they go home yeah pop the champagne we just made 6 million well listen that Joe I think I might have mentioned it before uh, it's it's uh, when I did the UA for Pro Licence we were you know given a, of some very good advice that the day you sit down to negotiate your contract as a manager don't worry about the length of contract. You hear this sometimes, such and such has got a five-year contract. That means absolutely nothing. The only thing that matters is, lads, can we agree on what happens the day you sack me? The day you sack me, how much money are you going to give me? Over what period of time is it going to be paid out? Um, and that's all that matters and because that is how nine out of ten of these relationships Yes, finish. and what what's your sense of how many managers, if they have two years left on their Premier League contract, are being paid two years? 
Um, yeah, I think to be fair, over over in England, I think they have it fairly well nailed at this moment in time. They'll get their full package. They'll get their full package. I, I. It's a great day to be sacked. Yeah. <laughs> A <laughs> little bit different in the League of Ireland, as you can okay. imagine. Uh, I went, to, I went into, I went in to be sacked. Well, all to be, it all look again. It all depends on your negotiating power. I would have get, gone in to get sacked at a at a previous club, and uh, as it was very well put to me, uh, Shane, here's what you're entitled to. Uh, here's zero. So let's have a chat about where we're going to meet in terms of those two opposite ends of the scale. And is your reply not well? If I'm entitled to that, I'll take that. Um. Yeah, and I suppose ordinarily what might happen is they'll say, well, let's go into a legal battle over its own and try and scare the daylights out of you and try and... Um, but, uh, yeah, the, the bit of wiggle room I would have had is often they might need the manager to sign a non-disclosure. And if that's the case, you don't sign the non-disclosure until they sign something okay. saying they're going to pay you in full. <laughs> you, you've just broken your non-disclosure now? <laughs> I'm well out the other side of it, thankfully, why not? <laughs> Um, anything else? A uh, couple of pieces, yeah. Um, in the Times, there's there's a new book out called on, on the bang, sorry, and a bang in the years by a lad called Phil Quinlan, written with Steve O'Rourke. Um, it's a guy who got uh, at sixteen, he got a bad brain injury um, that no one picked up at the, at the time when it happened. But it's a story of of his life since then. Mick Foley's got a good piece uh, in the Sunday Times, just talking to Phil what and sport? describing the book it was in football oh, right. in football so he was concussed he was in a coma one in four chance of survival but again no one noticed anything serious at the time but he's he's had chronic pain since then he's oh. you know reduced uh, movement along one side of his body but he now works um, for the last 17 years in a special care unit attached to St Mary's Special School in Navan helping kids with profound Disabilities. There's a lovely ending to the piece from from McFoley. He, he said he thinks of a child he looked after whose first anniversary occurred last weekend. He was 11 years of age. He says he never spoke, never ate, never walked. We had to be his voice on these recording devices, so we'd record a message on it. He taps it with his head to communicate. His mother came in to collect him one morning, so we recorded my Joe saying, "I love you, Mammy." and the guy started belting his head off the device. His head must have been red raw. She burst out crying. I bet. It's just it's a it's it's a nice piece. Um, I haven't read the book. I look forward to. Okay. Um, does it? Um, Paul Rowan's piece with Graham Stack is mad. Absolutely. Oh, go on. Give bonkers. us the give us the elevator pitch. Oh. Elevator pitch. During his time at the Arsenal Academy under Liam Brady, um, Graham Stack was remanded for one selling stolen Gucci gear out of the back of a Citroen Saxo to youth and first-team players. He remembers Brady leaning out of the window and shouting at him, this is Arsenal Football Club, not Camden Market. Two. Don't see a gap in the market, he spotted. Must be. Uh, Crashing the team bus and smashing the windscreen, leaving the official driver with a bloodied face. Uh, Three, dipping his head in an ice bucket for more than a minute to win £200 off senior pros Ray Parler and Fernie (laughs) Jeffers. Um, And he also jumped off the Wolves team coach in a traffic jam on the motorway and stole a ride on a Harley that was on a pickup truck. Um, There's darker stuff in there as well. They do touch on, he was was charged with, with rape while on loan. Um, Arsenal at Millwall uh, he continued to play at the time that that would probably be different now no, very different certainly. he was acquitted of all yeah. charges but it's it's it goes everywhere this piece it's okay. worth a read ok ok uh, fellas we're out of time thank you so much for going through the papers for us this afternoon Shane Keegan Cove Ramblers will miss Ireland's match tomorrow at training yeah. but thank you very much for Good. coming in Andy McGee pleasure appreciate it